Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Good morning, Rest Church! Wow. Good morning, Rest Igloo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, just to give you a little backstory, you're like, first time guess you're like, um, do they always keep it like a mortuary in here? The answer is no. My weight fluctuates uh, more than the Kentucky weather. Um, and some people are laughing because they know that's true. Uh, some people call me fat, skinny, fatter. Um, I just made that up. It really stems from the fact that I, that I got bad eating habits. How many of you got bad eating habits? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like it really comes down to the fact that um, when I'm on, I am on. But, like, this past week, I have not been on. Like, I mean, it has been... Uh, there was a whole platter of banana pudding left over after dinner at my mom's. And no one, I mean, there were so many desserts there, but it was like, I don't know, I don't want that. And I said, I want that. So I took it home, and I destroyed that. I mean, I have bad eating habits. And, and I was going to make a list for you, uh, and, and I kid you not, I'm not lying. This is not some sort of pastor tell you something to make you laugh kind of thing. I started to list out all the things that I love and the reasons why that I constantly move back towards fluffy. And, and I just stopped typing because it, the list just, it just kept going. It was like, you know, I love this bad thing. I love this bad thing. I, I love this bad thing. And, and, and it's sad because... The problem isn't so much that I slip up every now and then. The problem isn't that, hey, I eat good six days a week, and on that seventh day, like the rock, I wake up and I have my pancakes. No, it, it's, the problem is, is, like, I wake up and I'm like, Monday, hey, let's have some pancakes. And at lunch on Monday, I'm like, hey, let's have really, really bad other things. And it's like, it, it just snowballs. Is anybody else a snowballer like me? Yeah, I mean, snowballers. Um... And, and I wish that I could just keep the switch flipped on all the time. Um, but that's not the reality. Can, I, I want you to, you know, some of you guys said you're, you're uh, in that same boat. Can you imagine with me if somebody came to you, for um, all my people who have a BMI greater than 10, um, and came to you and said, hey, I have this new magic revolutionary pill. This particular pill... You can take it one time, and you can eat anything you want. I mean, anything you want. And, 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 you no longer have to work out. 
and you will maintain a healthy weight. If you're overweight, you will come back down, so on and so forth. Chances are, if you heard that, and, and it was from a credible, reliable source, because the American skeptic that's in you is like, yeah, 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 whatever. But if it was a credible source, chances are you'd be like, sign me up, right? Can, can I get an amen for all my... Yeah, 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 yeah. You would say, hey, you know, I, I would do that. Taking kind of that same concept, but applying it spiritually, we come to where we're at in Romans chapter 6. Paul was afraid that the folks who are in the Roman church had just heard chapter 5. Everything that we just covered as we talked through justification at great lengths. And they hear verse 20 where Paul says, if, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. They hear that particular verse, and what do you think they think? They go, magic pill. Magic spiritual pill. I can do whatever I want because there was nothing I could do to earn my salvation. There's nothing I can do when I have been eternally secured by God to lose my salvation. Therefore, I can live however I want to live. Thus, Paul comes to chapter 6. Paul, knowing the plight of the human mind, Paul, knowing his own flesh, begins to write a rhetorical response, a rhetorical question and answer to himself in this letter to deal with what the human mind would be thinking. And to fully capture the weight of today's text, I'm going to rewind us a little bit back into chapter 5. And we're going to read from verse 18 of chapter 5 all the way to verse 4 of chapter 6. So let's go ahead and read that together, church. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray, church. Father and Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask that as we open the scriptures that you would illuminate them to us. That God, that you would move in a mighty way. God, that you would stir up the heart of the saint, the heart of the saint that's in a backslidden state, the heart of the sinner, and that you would draw them to you, that they would repent, that they would lay down their sin, and that they would seek you and your righteousness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray Amen. In chapter 6, Paul speaks at great length 
of the glory of our union with Christ. Teaching us about the benefits package, as we saw in the end of chapter 5, that comes along with salvation. And in here, in chapter 6, we're going to see him kind of begin to progress in, in kind of what we would say is the three processes of sanctification. And, and if you haven't been around the church for very long, you might not have heard about the three processes of sanctification. And if you have, uh, if you've been around the church, chances are you've heard about it, but you might not necessarily understand the theological terms that are associated with it. And so what are the three processes of um, uh, of, of salvation. Well, well, first of all, we dealt with this in chapter 5, justification. We just read about justification. Uh, can you throw, throw that graphic up for me, guys? There we go. Uh, so, so what we see is that in the moment that we confess Jesus as Lord, we are regenerated. We are justified. We have a new spiritual life that begins. And that term justified, as we talked about at great lengths throughout the the, the first five chapters of, of the book of Romans is just as if I've never sinned. It, that's kind of the best way to look at it is when God the Father looks at you, he sees the imputed or the given righteousness of Christ Jesus that is on you. And so from that moment that you confess Jesus is Lord, moving forward, he doesn't see you for your sin-marred-stained human bag of bones that you are, he sees Jesus Christ's righteousness being imputed, given to you. And so from that moment, while you were dead in sin, at the point of your conversion, you are justified. So from that moment on, at any point, you die, you are justified. You can stand before God in heaven, knowing because you confess Jesus is Lord, that you will be granted eternal life. But that's not where the story ends. Kind of that second step in the Christian life is what, church? Sanctification. Sanctification. And so sanctification begins immediately following, immediately following the moment that you make confession to Jesus as Lord until your last breath. So essentially, justification is a moment Sanctification is a lifetime. And so what does sanctification mean? That is the, the process by which we are becoming more like Christ. The process by which we are becoming more like Christ. And then the third and final place that Paul is going to deal with real particularly in chapter 8 of Romans is glorification. And glorification, like justification, happens like that. The moment that you die, the moment you draw your last breath, and you step into glory, you will be glorified, which means you will be the perfect depiction of your possibility, the perfect um, summation of all that you are. You will assume that not just the imputed righteousness of Christ here on earth, but you will assume the righteousness and full totality in a bodily form just like Christ. So we kind of have these three modes, these three processes of salvation. And when we were in Romans chapter 5, Paul primarily dealt with justification. He primarily dealt with how that we have received the righteousness of Christ. 
how that the, the 33 years of Jesus's life leading up to the, the, leading up to the point of Jesus's death, and we talked about this two weeks ago, that Jesus had to come and live a perfect sinless life because our righteousness that we stand before God the Father with today is not just his sacrifice, right? Because we said that would just be expiation, that he covered our sins and that now that we're forgiven, but we would be left in the lurch from that point forward. But that he propitiated, not expiated us in the fact that he has given us all of his righteousness, the merits of his 33 years of perfection has been credited to our bank account. Okay, so now we stand before God the Father justified through the righteous works of Jesus in chapter 5. But in chapter 6, Paul is going to move from justification to sanctification. In fact, chapter 6 is primarily about, hey, straighten up. Hey, hear these words. This doesn't mean we get to do what we want. And so it's focusing on sanctification. And due to our relationship with Christ, we each now have the power to pursue a holy life that glorifies God. And and essentially what we're saying is in the process of sanctification, because we have been justified, because we've been made right, as if we have never sinned, sin is no longer our master. We are no longer duly bound by our sin conscience, but we have been given a new life, a new conscience that is found in Christ Jesus. So we come to verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So he's pointing back to chapter 5 verse 20. Paul's pointing back to chapter 5, verse 20. He asks this rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? He's essentially asking this question. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? I mean, it's a good thing that grace multiplies, right? So let's let it do its thing, right? Let's let it do its thing. It's like the little, um, the little, bo- bo- my wife left the room. Those little bubble things that you stick in water and they get real big. Orby. There we go. I was thinking of the ones that go in the smoothie that you can eat. Bubbles. You see, I'm just, I'm not hip enough. Just not. Okay, so, burbies? Borbies. All right. So essentially, if we're, if we're to take this to down to a kid level, Paul asks this rhetorical question. He says, well, if it grows in water, let's just put it in water. That's the rhetorical question. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? It's a pregnant pause. It's a great pause that Paul's asking All of that, he comes to what? What is the thing? What does this mean for us? Paul knows how we think. He knows that we're going to hear verse 20 in chapter 5 and be like, Yippee! Let's go out. Let's have an all-night bender. Let's go run up all our credit. Let's go gambling. Let, like, you name it. Every vice that the human mind can conceive, he knows that they're going to read verse 20 and go, hey, it's all okay. Paul said so. 
And so in this pregnant pause, the logic seems simple. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? It's the question. Notice the response, the emphatic response that he gives in chapter 2. By no means. Should we continue to sin? Should we put the orby in water so that it can grow? By no means. Most translations are very weak at translating what the Greek is doing here. The, the Greek word, may, spelled like me, when it comes to answering Paul's rhetorical question, should be clear. I love what the American Standard Version does here. It asks that question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the American Standard says, God forbid. God forbid. If you're reading in the NIV, it's one of the weakest translations of all of the English translations in this particular transliteration back to the Greek. In other words, what Paul is saying is we must not even think that. We must not even entertain that rhetorical thought. We must not go to chapter 5, verse 20 and say if grace increases, I mean if, sin, if where sin increases, grace increases all the more or abounds all the more. We shouldn't even think like that. Paul is not simply expressing a denial of that premise. The force of his language signals apostolic ex- Lawrence. He, he, he is appalled at even the notion that we would say grace will continue to increase so we will live like hell. He is appalled at that concept. He is appalled that a Christian would say, if I keep getting grace when I sin, I'm just going to keep on sinning that grace may abound. He says, God forbid, by no means. He wants it to be emphatically clear to the church in Rome. No, Paul knew that this would be a central issue to the church in future generations. That there would be folks who would slip into the church and who would teach this universalism, this thought, this notion that essentially a Christian can pray a prayer, a Christian can make a confession, a Christian can be baptized, and then be through that one thing can live however that they want and their lives look no distinguishingly different than that of when they first did not know Christ. He wants it to be absolutely clear. And, and man, the modern day church, we stink at this. We are terrible because we teach in such a way that we want to be inviting for everyone that we never, as the old pastor would say, today I'm going to preach on sin and how am I getting it? We never preach on sin. And Paul clearly here in Romans 6 wants it to be a central thought, a central theme that we can't, we can't move back to our old way of life. The natural response of the human heart when it hears justification through faith alone coupled with eternal security of the believer is to shake the shackles of God's law. It's the natural response. Plainly speaking, 
to use God's grace as a license for immorality. That's the heart of the doctrine of universalism. Wrestling with this topic, Martin Luther explained, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Justification by faith alone, as we have seen, is shorthand for justification by Christ alone and by his righteousness. By justification by faith alone was never intended by God for a license to do whatever we want. While the New Testament clearly teaches that we are not saved by our works, it never, and I want you to hear this, it never says works do not matter. I want you to hear this because there is a massive distinction between what is taught in a lot of churches and where we must be hermeneutically correct, where we must be orthodox. And an orthodox teaching, a true, right teaching in the church is this, is that while we are not justified by our works, the scriptures do not say works do not matter. The fruit of true faith, the fruit of true justification will always be conformity to the image of Christ. I want you to think through that statement. The fruit of true faith, the fruit of true justification will always be conformity to the image of Christ. The gospel teaches us that if we have true faith in Jesus Christ, works of obedience are not, in, not only inevitable, but immediate. Because a saved person is a changed person. I'm going to repeat that because it's critical The gospel teaches us that if we have true faith in Jesus Christ, works of our obedience are not only inevitable, but are immediate because a saved person is a changed person. Justification is the faith or the fruit of faith. And faith is the fruit of regeneration. We cannot say we have saving faith unless the Holy Spirit has changed the disposition of our souls. Essentially, what I'm getting at here, all who are saved, they're changed. From that moment, you are changed. That's why, you know, we find Nicodemus in the garden talking to Jesus in the middle of the night. Nicodemus asks Jesus in John 3, he asks that all that critical question, what must a person do in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds back to that, that a man must be born again. And, and Nicodemus asks like man a question that we all think is absurd today on this side of that question. But the reality is Nicodemus didn't have all of the data in front of him. And, and not having all the data, he said, hey, do I need to enter my mother's room a second time so I can be born again? And he says, no. No, Jesus says, no. But essentially, what, this is, what we're getting at, what Paul is getting at here, is that when we are saved, we are changed. And the 
The outlook of the human heart, the outlook of the human mind from that point forward should be something altogether different. We cannot have the Holy Spirit changing the disposition of our hearts, bringing us to faith, but then leaving us out to dry where nothing changes. That's not the story of the gospel. That's not what a transformed life looks like. If we have made a profession of faith, but there is absolutely no evidence of change in our hearts and lives, then we need to ask whether the profession of faith was genuine. My main point today, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit on this for quite a bit, is true faith, all, true faith always and immediately produces change. True faith, saving faith. I'm gonna make that distinction. Not just some random faith that you set in a chair, but true saving faith always and immediately produces change. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Absolutely not. Verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? The phrase dead to sin refers to the vanquishing of the tyrannical and dominion power of sin. Because we are no longer in Adam. A few weeks back, I brought a big, as I found out later, a very expensive ball of yarn. All my knitters were talking about that. I can't believe you used it. I'm like, it's not, whatever. Anyways, so, so uh, Russ played Adam for us, and we started passing the yarn around the room. And I was talking about imputation, how that uh, Adam's sin, he acted as our federal head. It's called federalism from a theological standpoint. And he passed on that recessive sin gene to all of us. It was like a disease. Sin was just passed from generation to generation to generation to generation. And so, what we find is that Christ was born of a virgin, distinctly, to break the line of sin. He's born the seed of the Holy Spirit to create a new line, a new line of righteousness, to sever the line of um, Adam. And so, what we have here is essentially, Paul is asking the question, how can we who died to sin, Dead people, they're not still walking around, right? Like, when a person's dead, we don't say, oh, they got a little bit of a heartbeat. Oh, they got a little bit of a brainwave. No, when they're dead, they're, they're dead, right? They're dead, dead, dead. Can we all agree to that? And so Paul's pointing out the obvious here. He says, how can we say we're dead to sin? How can we say we have been separated, that that line has been broken, and now we've received the imputed righteousness of Christ? How can we say that and still live in it? It's dead. It's dead. Paul is speaking here of the dying of sin that takes place when one becomes a Christian. We who know God's saving grace in Christ have said goodbye to the world of sin. We are new. This does not mean, as my legalistic background used this particular subsection of verses to beat us over the head. 
If you grew up in an Armenian background, um, and, and I'm just going to roll them under the bus and call it like it is. If you grew up in a Pentecostal church, you grew up in a church of Christ, chances are you've heard this particular text used as a battering ram to beat you. This, this particular text, as if you must be absolutely and completely holy from that point forward forever, or you will lose your salvation. Always. If you grew up in a background like that, like I did, you heard that. But the reality is, is what Paul's getting out here does not mean that we are not capable of sinning anymore, but that our relationship with sin has changed. We clearly see that as Paul teaches in the rest of the epistles. He's like, hey, I don't do the things I want to do. I do the very things that I hate. We see this struggle. We see this wrestling match in the writings of the apostles. James says, he who says he is without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. It is impossible to be completely and totally holy. But... To be dead with our sin means the relationship has changed. We have died to it. We no longer live under its dominion. Yes, indeed, the battle with sin goes on for our whole lifetime. We do not believe that it is that we have instantaneous sanctification. See, we have instantaneously been justified, like I said, but to be sanctified is a process. James is the best scripture to think through this. James says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That every day we're to approach the throne of grace with a repentant and a humble heart. Every day we are to move in such a way that we move closer to Christ and we forsake our sin more. The apostles understood this teaching that it would not be instantaneously. We will never be more justified than we are when we first confess Jesus. But our sanctification process, if done correctly, will push us to Christ. The illustration from Tim Keller about this relationship. To understand the the decoupling from the dominion of sin and death. The decoupling and how that we have inherited the righteousness of Christ. And what Paul is truly getting at. Tim Keller says this, and man, it's Good. I want you to think through this. If a wicked military force had uh, complete control of a country and a good army invaded, the good army could throw the wicked force out of power and give the capital seat of the government to the good force again. But the out-of-power soldiers could still live somewhere in the bush. The guerrilla force could create havoc for the new rightful government it could often impose its will on part of the country even though it could never maintain the seat of power ever again you understand that is that you have this guerrilla force out in the bush while they are not in power while they are not the ones making laws of the land they can at times impose their will on the good government how many of you feel like you've got a guerrilla force just seemingly always attacking you from inside you? You can't get out of your own way. I mean, you're at work and you just want to slap somebody. You're at home and you just want to scream. 
You're in front of the hostess aisle and you want the Christmas tree cakes. I mean, yeah. We have this attacking force, but that attacking force is never going to dominate us ever again because our relationship has changed. Our dominion has moved from that of the first Adam of sin and death to that of Christ, which is righteousness and life. So having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer within you or that it has no more power and it does not influence you. Absolutely it does. But sin can no longer direct you. It can no longer dictate to you. Though we may obey it and the Bible predicts that we will at times, the fact remains that you no longer have to obey it. He has given you the strength to overcome have died to it it can be dead to you verse 3 do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death transitioning from verse 2 to 3 Paul now elaborates on how we died to sin his statement about baptism recalls the believers conversion to Christ where we were baptized into Christ spiritually. We were baptized into his death. Likewise, Christ's physical life before the cross, it is gone. Just as like our sin, it has been gone. It has been given uh, back away to our forefather Adam. It is dead in Christ. Our sin is dead in Christ. Becoming a Christian is not just about adding a little something new to your life or or praying a little bit of prayer to keep yourself out of hell. It It is a complete and total brand new personal identification with Christ. It is a total transformation of us from the inside out. It is a metamorphosis. True faith always and immediately produces change. This is why sometimes if you hear, if you pay attention, when I baptize somebody, I always say the same thing. It's not like I'm, you know, Um, a liturgical guy. But, you know, I'll ask the questions, can, you know, just, just as a profession of faith, do they know Christ? And I will say, buried in the death, just as Christ, and raised in newness of life. See, we too, like Christ, have two different types of things going on. We're going to see, we, we see in our spiritual life that on the moment that we repent, that we confess, we bury spiritually our old sin conscience. And just like Christ, that new sin conscience, I mean, that new life has been raised up inside of us. The Holy Spirit has taken residence inside of us. The God lives inside of you. But then also later on, there's going to come a day where we are put in the ground and we will be raised physically in a bodily form. 
just like Christ, up as well. And Paul's pointing to this, this first death, the death of the, of the sin of Adam inside of us. And he's pointing to the fact that, hey, that has been destroyed. We no longer live by that. And so verse 4, we have been buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says, hey, this regenerated heart that has been put in you doesn't lead you to do dead men things. This regenerated heart that has been put in you has given you a new conscience. It has given you a new spirit. And everything about you should be changed. Paul says we've been buried with him. We have shared in the death of Christ. Burial speaks of the end of a life. Burial speaks of the end of the life. We cannot go back to our old way of life because that way of life is dead and buried. Furthermore, there is a purpose for the burial. What's the purpose for burial, church? It's resurrection. We not only share in the death, but we also share in the resurrection. We have been buried in order to walk in newness of life. What God did for Christ in raising him from the dead, he also does for believers at conversions. He liberates them from the power of sin and gives them new resurrection life. A life that begins at conversion, but will be completed on the day of resurrection. You are made new. You don't have to return to your sin. You are not tethered to it. And and for some reason, we buy the lie that our flesh and that Satan wants to tell us, oh, you'll never overcome this. You'll never be able to beat this particular sin because chances are every single one of us have something that we're constantly tethered to. As I say all the time, every one of us are an addict. Every one of us, we're just addicted to something different. You, you have something that ensnares you. It could be your anger. It could be drunkenness. You, you name it. It could be a myriad of different things. But you have been set free. And so I asked you this question today. What is the rule of your life? What is the rule of your life? And I pose this question from a quote that comes from C.S. Lewis. The rule of heaven, thy will be done. The rule of hell, my will be done. And so I ask you, if you'll just hang right there on that quote. What is the rule of of your life today? Is the ethos of your life every day when you wake up, you point your heart, you point your head to the, to the statement, thy will be done. Father, Lord Jesus, I come to you. Your will be done in me. Your will be done in the space where I do life. Your will be done in the relationships of the people who I'm around. Your will be done in the words that are coming out of my mouth. Not just that I speak goodness, but that I don't speak 
death. And I don't speak death to my, to, to my co-workers. I don't wish ill of them. I don't speak death to the people who are in class with me. I don't speak death to my children. I don't call them names. I don't put them down. I don't speak death to my partner and to my spouse. But I speak thy will be done. I speak love, hope, goodness. And when I speak, I speak with measured self-control. So I'm asking you, what is the rule of your life? Is it thy will be done or my will be done where you wake up and you say, I'm out for me. Today I'm chasing the American dream. Today it's all about got to make those Benjamins. Today it's all about what makes me happy, what keeps me from being hungry. As we opened up the text today, we talked about sanctification. How that we grow a bit more daily if we are in pursuit of Christ and we become more like Christ. Our our process of sanctification is a direct result of time feeding the right nature that we possess. We can either sow into our flesh or we can sow into our spirit. We can either do works of the flesh and sin, or we can do works of the Spirit and walk with Christ. This comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will be from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. And so I ask you the question again, what is the rule of your life? Is the rule of your life the rule of heaven, thy will be done? Or is the rule of your life the rule of hell, my will be done? If you're following the rule of heaven, your motto would be that of the quote of the old Puritan preacher, John Owen. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And I'm going to ask you to keep that quote up there as I kind of progress through this. A correct version of sin, a correct view of sin, is that there is no small sin, church. There is no small acceptable indiscretion against the holy law of God. There is no acceptable level of it in our lives. Wherein we go, it's all good, we all do it. Sometimes I, I, I hear Christians that I am with, and, and it breaks my heart when they go, well, it's not a big deal, we all sin. And I just want to wake up and say, do you hear what you're saying? Do you hear what you're saying? And this is why Paul said, you were bought with a price. The highest price of all of heaven and earth was given for you. There is no correct view where we say it's all good, we all do it, let's sweep it under the rug, let's move forward. 
And that's this, this thought is invoked in the abhorrent response of Paul when he says, absolutely not, where he says, God forbid. To that thought, to that notion, a correct view of sin is where we, where, where we treat it like a roach problem in our house. How many roaches are acceptable in your house? How many roaches? Not one roach. God wants us to look at our sin the same way we look at roaches in our house. When you've got roaches or you have an insect infestation, you, you go after it with all the veracity that you got. You're, you're like the orchid man. You're, you're out there spraying and you're out there killing. You will do any and everything that you can to fully eradicate it. And, and that's what John Owen was getting at here. He, he essentially said, hey, we got to stop living with this, this colony of, of roaches in our life and just going, it's, it's all right. Because the reality is, and we all know this, man, you have one roach, you have what? Come on, you can say it out loud. Yeah, you got a bunch of roaches. Where you see one roach, there's never one roach. And the truth is, is our sin is the exact same way. If you say it's okay, let me accept this sin, let me just let it be a part of my life, it will fester up, it will become a colony of roaches that over time will be harder and harder and harder for you to deal with. It will begin to invade other areas, other avenues of your mind, of your lifestyle, of your ethos. It will, it will transform you from a humble person to a prideful person. It will transform you from a person who's meek and mild to a person who's angry all the time because it is pervasive it is a disease that if not killed it will kill you so if we look at sin like a roach problem how do we run after it the truth is is this isn't a one day thing this isn't just a, hey, you know, I'll try to figure it out on Saturday night before I go in. I'll, I'll pray so that at least I go in to church every week. And, and I don't feel so bad about all the dumb things I've done. No, no, no. It is a process where we go after it every day. Because if not constantly treated like a dog, as the scriptures say, we will return to our vomit. We will return to our sin. Which brings me kind of to this, this place and kind of close. Within each church today, there are four groups of people. This is every church all across the globe. There are four groups of people. Four. The first one is, is those who are saved and hate their sin. Those who are saved and hate their sin. The second one is, is those who are saved and are, and are momentarily blinded by their sin. They're, they're backslidden. They're in a backslidden state. They know Jesus is Lord, but they, they, they can't get out of their own way right now. And in due season, they will be convicted and they will be repentant. 
The third group are those who are lost. That's easy enough, right? Those who have never made a profession to Jesus, those who are lost. They have never been regenerated. They have never had a spiritual awakening. They are still dead in the sins of Adam. And then the fourth group, and man, the fourth group is the group that is the hardest in the church to reach. Those who think they are saved but are actually lost. The question for you, and I want you to have an honest, 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 honest conversation in your head as as I go through this next part. Which group are you in? And it it really, man, really, it all predicates, it all, it all is on this one fulcrum, this one spot. How do you feel about sin? How do you feel about your sin? That really dictates where of those four groups you find yourself today is all about how do you feel about your sin? If you're in group one, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep digging and grinding. Study the scriptures. Push yourself to the limit. Devote, you know, develop a rhythm within your walk so that when things go wrong, your whole life doesn't unravel. And one key thing, set sure up the vulnerabilities in your life. You have them, you know what they are, and you need to sure them up. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that we are not to give Satan even a foothold. If you, if that's you, it's more about the don't and the do's. You know what the don't and the do's are. Don't put yourselves in situations you shouldn't be around. If you struggle with, you know, if you struggle with this, man, set up a system to prevent yourself from being alone with that sin. Just like saying to an alcoholic, hey, don't go hang out in a bar. Don't go sit and have a conversation with the barkeep and watch people drink all around you. The same way you can't trust yourself with, with, with a, another person, the opposite sex of yourself. And you know the proclivity of your heart. You desire lust. You, you desire those things. Don't put yourself in a situation where you are alone to open a door of opportunity. Don't give Satan a foothold. Because this is one of the, man, my favorite quotes from John Piper. is He says, I never say I won't. Because the moment I say I won't, the devil hears that and he makes it his mission to make sure I will. So always approach your spiritual life as if you will, as if you will fail, as if you will fall on your face. Therefore, you will guard yourself from the footholds that the enemy has against you. Sure up the chinks in your armor. If you're in group two today where you find yourself in this backslidden state, and Julie, you can go to group two slide just so that people ask that question where they're at. If you're in group two, man, I, I most simply put, repent today. Simply stop and start back. More than likely, you've, you have um, you started doing things that God expressively forbids you to do. You're, you're, you're sleeping around. You're sleeping outside of marriage. And the, and the truth is, man, the scripture is very clear. It's one man, one wife, one life. Anything outside of a heterosexual, monogamous marriage is sin. So that means watching porn or looking at things that cause you to lust stealing 
stealing on your taxes. Tax season's coming up, man. God's watching. Stealing from your work by not working ethically. There's a lot of people, man, they go to work every day and they don't work as if they work for the Lord. They work as if, hey, I'm here to get a paycheck. I'm going to do the bare minimum. No, the scriptures declare, the scriptures command how that we are to be separate from the rest of that of the world. Do you work with integrity? Because if you don't, you are in sin. It's that simple. There's no room for gray area there. Are you working in a place of integrity, for integrity, with integrity? How about this? Are, are you sinning constantly because of your anger? Are you gossiping? Are you lying? Are you overeating? So you started doing the things that you need to stop. Today, stop. Repent. Or have you stopped doing the things that you need to do? Like, you know, spending time in prayer, devoting time, a set-apart time to pray to God and have communication with Him. Are you spending time in His Word? Do you need to start reading His Word? Set up a daily routine. Are you, are you constantly, and I mean constantly, I don't mean, hey, once every, once a month, every, you know, two weeks out a month. I mean, are you faithfully attending a Bible-believing, Bible-affirming church? Are you studying the Scriptures with the ecclesiastical community? Because you know what? The Scriptures command that. The Scriptures command that we are to live in accountability with one another so that we can admonish, we can reprove, and we can rebuke one another when our lives are outside of the will of God. That's not up to us. That's what the Scriptures command. And so today, if you're in a backslidden state, He is saying to you, start doing the things that you know that are right so that you can be in a place moving towards sanctification. If you're in group three today and you're lost, man, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who came and died a perfect and sinless death for you. So that you can have everlasting life. So that if you would believe and you would confess of him today, today as Lord, you can be saved. You can be regenerated and you can receive a new heart, a new nature. Repent and believe. Forsake your sin and follow the Lord Jesus. And lastly, if you're in group four, you know, technically you're actually in group three, but you're lying to yourself. You're, you're hanging on to, to the moment that something happened. This whole sermon, you've been fighting with me in your mind. You've been saying, hey, you know, you, 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 you don't know me. You can't be right. You can't judge me. I'm not judging you. Scriptures are, and the scriptures are clear. And I'm asking you in this moment to be objective with yourself. The scriptures are telling you, you are incongruent with them. And if If you die, not on my word, but on the words of the scripture, you will go to hell. You've been self-justifying this whole sermon. You've been saying why it's okay, why your lifestyle is okay, why these things are seemingly acceptable, why it's okay to have a few roaches in the house. 
You're doing this because one day at, at some church, you stood up when the preacher said, hey, do you want to respond to the gospel? And you came down front and you stood in front of the church and maybe you were, maybe you were like the, the, my first Baptist church where when you accepted Jesus, we put you out and we extended the right hand of fellowship and people come down and shake your hand. And you're pointing back to that moment. You're saying, that's the moment, that's the moment, that's the moment. But the reality is, is if there was no life change, you didn't meet Jesus. If you didn't get a new regenerated heart, if the ethos of your life hasn't been altered, you didn't meet Jesus. You came up and basically read a Hallmark card. So quit trying to self-justify. And I beg you to hear me. If nothing really changed, if your heart was not transformed on that day, I ask you today to repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. And it comes back to the main point. True faith always and immediately produces change.